0: That you sang that Christmas song It's rapidly becoming one of my favorites And this morning I want to do just that I want to invite you to come with me To see what God has done And I want you to look beyond Even what we have up here in front Just the traditional major scene And I want you to Through the word of God this morning Consider What exactly Jesus did for you what Jesus did for me, what Jesus did for all of us. And for the next three Sundays, we're going to open the same passage of Scripture, and we're going to unfold the sentences that God gives to us here, and we're going to just really this morning look in at that amazing truth of God coming in the flesh. God coming in the flesh. We're going to do this in Philippians chapter 2, and I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, um, bug the person sitting next to you, get get your phone, open up your Bible app, and and go with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm not really good at creating titles for series or whatever, but if I had to title the next three messages that I want to share with you at Christmas time, I would call them this. Emptied to exalted, emptied to exalted, and this morning we're going to look at Christ and how He emptied Himself in verses 5 through 7, and we're going to, next week we're going to look at verse 8, and we're going to look at, at the amazing result of His carnation, the fact that God is our Savior, and then on Christmas Eve we're going to look at verses 9 through 11, and we're going to see that final lasting result, the fact that Christ is exalted above all, a God who is worthy. And honestly, my prayer is, and the elders' prayer has been, as we've considered these messages, that it would challenge you, that would encourage you. The last thing that I want you to do is come to a Sunday morning service where little kids have played the bells and just feel warmed and filled and go out and understand, well, Jesus came, and joy to the world, all that wonderful stuff. But because if it doesn't matter to you in a very real way, then you've missed the message of Christmas. You've missed it. And I don't want you to miss it. Because as we contemplate the birth of our Savior, His first coming, it ought to automatically just pull our attention and pull our minds to the fact that just as He came the first time, He's going to come a second time. You see, when He came the first time, it's kind of safe, isn't it? It's kind of cute. In a way, a little baby in a manger, who wouldn't love that, right? But the second coming comes, if you're not prepared for that, it could be a very fearful time. It should be an awestruck time for you. And so we want to look at the words of Scripture this morning. I've invited you to Philippians chapter 2. I'm just going to read verses 5 through 11 this morning. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And whether or not we realize it this morning... The, the passage of Scripture we've just read applies to every single one of us because you tell us there at the end of that that every tongue will, will confess, that every knee will bow, and so that includes every one of us in this room this morning, Father. This passage of Scripture, just like the rest of your Word, was written for our learning. It was written so that, that we might understand it, so that we might benefit from it. And so this morning I pray in these moments that we have, that you would open up your word to our hearts, bring it alive, give us understanding spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want you to see this morning is, is that there's a command right at the beginning here. Do you see it there in verse five? Have this mind among yourselves. Literally, Paul is writing to the Philippian believers, he's writing to us indirectly through this letter, and he's saying, this is the way that you're supposed to think. Now, we live in a day and age where we don't like being told how to think. Anybody else getting tired of being told how to think? Because normally, and, and usually when we're told how to think, it's by people who don't know how to think themselves, right? But here God is addressing us in His Word, and He is saying this to us this morning, think this way, have this mind about yourselves. And these verses deal with the incarnation. Pastor Andy used that word incarnation. I've got to be honest with you. That is like a 50 cent that like seminary word. Incarnation just means that God came in the flesh that God came in the flesh, that God is incarnate, that, that He is right here with us, and that, and that when He came, it wasn't just like a hologram. That's the big deal now, you know? They've revived rock and roll stars' careers with holograms. Jesus wasn't a hologram. Mary Literally, physically gave birth to that baby. She held him in her arms. She was able to kiss him. She was able to hear him coo. She had to change his dirty diapers. He was in the flesh. And then John says in his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 14, the word, Jesus, became flesh and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. He was right here with us. And Paul, who's writing here in the book of Philippians, has a purpose in using the account of Christ's birth and coming in the flesh, his incarnation, and he's laying it before his audience, and he's laying it before you and I this morning as an example for us to follow, an attitude to make our own. Think this way. Now, before we can unpack that, I want to just point out to you that this command is only addressed to followers of Jesus. And for for several reasons. Go back earlier in the book in chapter 1 and verse 1, and we very clearly see who the audience for this letter is. The audience is the saints who are in Philippi. Now, we tend to think of saints in a venerated kind of way. There's there's a saint for everything. There's a saint for travel. There's a saint for puppies. There's a saint for everything, right? Saint is just a really kind of cool way, though, to to identify those people who are followers of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you probably don't feel very saint-like. Saint Dan, (laughs) No. But here's the thing. It's not because of what we've done, but it's because of what Christ does that we're set apart and that we can be counted as saints this morning. So if you're a child of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a saint this morning. Now, husbands, don't try that on your wives. Hey, treat me like a saint. No. But if you go to chapter 2, He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The only way that one can truly emulate or imitate Jesus is to have had your heart changed by Jesus. It's the only way that you and I can imitate him. The only way to do that is to have been changed by him. So here's the implications of this. If you're here this morning and you have never by faith put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the command that's given here is impossible for you to follow. You say, why'd I bother coming? Well, I'm so glad that you're here because you can, through faith in Christ, imitate Christ and follow him in his commands. You can have a relationship with your creator, God. Do you understand that this morning? Sometimes we wonder with, why am I even here on this earth? I've had that talk with people over and over. And it's usually people who are getting up there in age and they'll say to me, why am I still here? Well, I've got one clear answer for you. You know why you're still here? It's because God wants relationship with you. He made you for that. And so you and I are here because God wants relationship with us. And if you don't have relationship with, you, with, with God, the birth of Christ is really good news for you. God came and dwelt with us so that we might have relationship with him. In Matthew, when, when the angel addresses, when he addresses Joseph in the book of Matthew, he says this, he comes or he came to save his people from their sins, his people, God comes in the flesh, and God, in the person of Jesus Christ, lives a sinless life, and then he offered himself in my place and in your place as a sacrifice for your sin. The one who came to take on the wrath of God. Let that sink in for a second. Every single one of us, I think, if you're honest with me this morning, would admit that you're a sinner. Y'all agree with me? Yeah, I'm a sinner. And the Bible says because we're sinners, we deserve the wrath of God. We have earned it. In fact, some of us are really busy about earning it day after day, are we not? Put myself at the top of the list. God should be fiercely white-hot angry with me. And with you, shouldn't he? Because we have violated his holiness. And yet God came in the flesh and he lived something that you and I could never do. He lived a perfect life. He never got disrespectful with his parents. <laughs> he never complained about authority. He never gave in to the temptation to tell a lie. He never questioned His own Father, God the Father, he never questioned as to his purposes for why he was here. He did it right for 33 years. As a man, and we're going to see that here in just a second. He did that right for 33 years so that he could be perfect in offering himself up for us. Because here's the thing. You and I, This is the way we're hardwired. Whether or not you realize it, we're all hardwired the same way in this regard. We are wired to want to produce righteousness in and out of our own hearts. We're wired to do good and do good things to try to impress God, and in, in the very act of doing that is an act of pride. The Bible tells us this, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who does good. So the good things that we're trying to do really accomplish nothing before God. And the very fact that we try to do it indicates just how wretched that we are. And so this morning, before we even consider this command, if you're not a child of God, got good news for you. Christ came and died for you so that you can be his child. But if you're a follower of Christ, this command and its demands are placed squarely on you this morning. You see it there in verse 5? Have this mind. Think this way. This is the way, this is the attitude that all believers, little Christians, little Christ ought to have. This This is how we're supposed to think. We're being told to adopt an attitude. And here's the reality. Why do we have to be told to think this way? Well, duh, because we don't think this way. We don't often think of others first. We we primarily think of who first? Me. It's the way we're wired. And so to understand this completely, The Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, take the incarnation, the birth of of Christ, Him coming in the flesh, and he just kind of unpacks it for us this morning, and I want us to see this this morning. And to first understand this, we have to understand who Jesus is in His position. And we see it here in verse 6. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, Christ, though He was, what? In the form of God. Though he was in the form of God, this is an important phrase, and we have to understand exactly what God is driving at here. When we see the word was, we often think of, that's what I used to be, right? Like I, at one time in my life, was an athlete. I'm certainly not one now. I met one time in my life, I was able to, to wake up in the morning and not feel pain. I was young one time, right? We think about it that way, right? That's who I was. And so when we look at this, we think about Jesus. He was God at some point. But in the original language that this is given, in that word that, that was that we have in our English, it's it's far richer than, than just our meaning of just in the past. What it means is not only was he this, but he continues to be that. He continues to be that. So think about it this way: He was God, he is God, and he always will be God. That's what that word means. He's not changed, and he never will change. In eternity past, he was God. Right now, he's God. In eternity future, he's going to be God. And so, way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, as Isaiah is prophesying to a rebellious Israel... (laughs) He says this in chapter 7. God tells him to say this. A virgin will conceive and will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I want to be clear this morning. Our English words, form of God, can also kind of skew our thinking. It doesn't mean this, that in eternity past, God existed as the Father, and then God took on another form and became Jesus and was here on this earth, and now He exists in a third form as the Holy Spirit. That's that's an incorrect way to understand this. i got to be clear on that. God has always existed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he continues to exist in three persons. And he will forever exist in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when it says the form of God, let's understand what what he's driving at here is, is that Jesus as the Son of God is equal in power, perfection, and performance to Almighty God himself. Let me say that again for you. He's equal in power. He's equal in perfection, and he's equal in performance to Almighty God. He's just as powerful as Almighty God, he's just as perfect as Almighty God, and he can do exactly the same things that Almighty God does because he is God himself. How many of you have a headache at this point? Because we're talking about the Trinity here. And anytime we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we we try with limited human minds to put God in some kind of box that we can understand, and let's face it, we can't do it. But let's understand something here. As we consider who Jesus was, just let me give you some ideas here to just kind of contemplate to understand what God is doing here. Here we have God who is the creator God, and think about the power that it takes to create. You and I say we create things today, like some people are good at creating art, that's not me. But even the creations that people create with their art began with something, did they not? Think of some of the greatest painters and sculptors. Michelangelo, he began with a block of marble or granite, did he not? He began with tools, did he not? And he produced amazing things. God is so powerful that out of nothing, he created everything that you and I can see, that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can feel, that we can experience, and all the things that we can't see, like what's going on inside of your body right now. God did that with a word. You think that's powerful? Pretty powerful. In this powerful God who created all this, He takes on the form of creation, and He enters into His creation. Think about it this way, how many of you attended VBS as a kid? How many of you made little crafts at VBS? How many of you still have them? I don't want to know. When I was a kid in BBS, we did this one thing, and I thought this was the coolest thing because we got to play with matches. I'm not advocating we do it today because I pretty much almost did burn the church down. (laughs) Wooden matches, and we lit them all, and you let them burn, and you had to blow them all out, and then we took them, and we, we put them in the form of a cross, right? Imagine this, me being the creator of that, stepping into my creation and becoming a used matchstick in my own creation. Ludicrous, isn't it? But here's Jesus, God in the flesh, who spoke everything into existence. And then what does he do? He enters into his creation. He enters into his creation. So we have this command to follow, and we see this lofty position of who Jesus is, this position of who he is. He's the Almighty One. He's God, He's equal in every way, which makes what we're about to talk about so profound in my mind. I want you to see the attitude that we're called to emulate in verses six and seven. We're called to emulate the humility of Jesus. Remember the old country song, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way." That's how we all think about ourselves, isn't it? Some of you are like, he just butchered that song. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Daryl, you probably worked on production of that song, didn't you? (laughs) What we're going to see here in these couple of phrases is what I call this descending staircase that Christ had to step down to lower himself to be God in the flesh. It's a descent that Christ took willingly at the direction of the Father. Now, think about that as we begin to consider this. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, I already said they're equal in everything, right? When you're equal, when you're co equal, you don't have to submit, do you? I'm just as powerful of you as you are. But no, God, the Son, Christ, voluntarily sets stuff aside in submission to the Father. The first step down we see here in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, number one, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see it there in verse 6? I put it this way, even though he was equal with God the Father, he refused to hold on to that equality. Man, equality. you talk about equality in the world that we live in today and you could get yourself in a lot of trouble, can't you, right? And we have a skewed understanding of what equality is in our world, you'd at least admit that with me, wouldn't you? that we have a skewed understanding of what equality is, because, because we, we try to call things equal that really aren't equal in the world that we live in today. But, but in, in the perfection of heaven, in the glory of God, there, the, there you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfectly equal. And the first thing that he does is, is that he chooses not to hold on to that equality. Now, let me be clear here. Let me be crystal clear here, and if you don't get anything this morning, but you get this, I want you to understand this. That is not saying that he stopped being deity. Jesus never ceased being God. Never. Never. In fact, in his ministry, he actually affirmed the fact that he was God numerous times. I'll give you a couple examples. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, he said this, I and the Father are one. In other words, I'm just as much God as the God the Father is. Earlier in John chapter eight, when he's, when he's talking there to this large crowd and he's dealing with, with the Pharisees or trying to trip him up, he says this because they're literally they're pressing him on this. What about Abraham? What about Abraham? What about Abraham, Jesus? What are you going to do with Abraham? He says this: "Before Abraham was, I am." Now you and I may not understand the significance of that. He is saying that, "Before Abraham, me, Yahweh." In other words, I am God. He never once, for a millisecond, stopped being deity, stopped being God. But he chose not to grasp onto the fact that he was God and selfishly use that for his own sake. He even talked about that in Matthew chapter 26. Remember whenever he's being arrested in Matthew chapter 26? And remember what Peter does? Peter's like, it's about to go down. Revolution is about to happen. Peter pulls his sword and he starts swinging it wildly, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And remember what Jesus says to him? He's like, Peter, sheathe your sword. Don't you know that if I wanted, I could have called 10 legions of angels and we could have solved this really quick right now? Only God can do that, right? So the first thing that he did is is even though he was equal to God the Father, he chose not to grasp onto that. He let go of that and didn't use that for his own advantage. Boy, that is so unlike how we are today, isn't it? <laughs> We're constantly being bombarded. You are somebody. Stand up for yourself. Defend yourself. You have rights, right? Right? Jesus is saying, No, don't grasp onto that. Just let go of that. But he didn't stop there. Look at verse 7. The next phrase, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Theological geeks right now are begging me to use the Greek word. The Greek word is kenosis. Okay, are you satisfied? (laughs) What does it mean that he emptied himself? we got to be careful of what he did and didn't empty himself of here. Again, did he empty himself of being divinity? Did he empty himself of being God? No. It wasn't like he, he, had, he had this transaction where he said, I'm going to trade in being divinity for being man. At the moment of his birth, he didn't stop being God. Think about that, mothers. How many of you have held a little baby? Moms you thought your babies were angelic, didn't you? You thought they were perfect. There's only one mother who actually got it right, right? There's only one mother who actually got that right. And so he emptied himself. And so what did he empty himself of? trying to think about how I can best put this in ways that are really understandable because I myself, I I start reading theology books about this stuff and my my mind starts spinning. I'm like, just put it down in common language for me, okay? I'm kind of dumb. What did he empty himself of? Well, a couple things, and they're really important. He emptied himself of the glory that he had in heaven. He emptied himself of that. You and I like to get glory when we can get it, right? Who doesn't like a good attaboy every now and then or a pat on the back? It's kind of nice this time of year to be recognized by your boss, especially if he gives you a check, right? A bonus, right? Jesus emptied himself of, of a divine right, if you will, of the glory that he shared with the Father. In fact, we know he did Because when he chose in just a brief moment to reveal his glory to just a few of his followers on the Mount of Transfiguration, it blew Peter, James, and John away, didn't it? So much so that Peter's like, hey, this is a great place. Let's just build some tents here and just stay here the rest of the time, Jesus. He emptied himself of the glory that he had with the Father. Secondly, he emptied himself of the riches of heaven. Think about it, he came and was born to not uber wealthy parents, he was born to really poor people, wasn't he? The scripture's clear, Jesus in his own words, <laughs> foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, the son of man doesn't even have a place where he can lay his head, he didn't even have a physical place that he could call home when he was an adult in serving. He left the riches, the Bible elsewhere puts it this way. He became poor so that you and I could become what? Rich, that through his poverty we might be rich. What else did he empty himself of? This is probably the one that just strikes me the most. And this is the one, quite honestly, as a as a human being trying to understand God Himself, I cannot figure this out for the life of me. And I even think when we get to heaven, I get a chance to maybe I'll get a chance to address this with him. I won't understand it when he explains it either. But think about on the cross there comes a moment on the cross where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why? What? Have you forsaken me? Christ emptied himself of the relationship that he had with his Father. Why? So that he could carry out the Father's plan and and, and be able to be our Redeemer. He emptied himself of that. Another thing he emptied himself of was the exercise of of his divine attributes He chose not to use them in their full extent. As God, could he have been everywhere at all times while he was here on this earth? And at times, he did kind of hint at that, didn't he? Like with Nathaniel, when he's calling Nathaniel to himself, he he reminds Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under the tree. What? But he limited that in that he emptied himself. And I think to myself follower of Christ, when was the last time that we willingly emptied ourselves of any of our divine rights or our so-called divine rights? Thirdly, it says this, that he took on the form of a servant. He literally took on the nature and the essence of what makes a servant. Do you understand what that means? The Lord of all voluntarily becomes a bond slave the one who can command anyone and everyone now willingly takes on the position of servant the one who has to do the bidding of another he even told his disciples i didn't come to serve but to to be served but to what to serve And the ultimate of this is, is that he willingly over and over and over submitted to the will of his father. He was the servant of his father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's about to be put on trial, he's there sweating great drops of blood, the Bible says, and he prays this, not my will, but what? Because if it's my will, I wish that this cup would pass from me. And I think the cup that he's talking about is what we talked about just previously, the fact that he was about to be cut off from his father. Let that pass from me." So even though he was equal, he didn't grab onto it, he emptied himself, thirdly, he took on the form of a servant, and fourthly, he was made in the likeness of men. Literal meaning is, he became a human being, literally. He took on the limitations, the problems, the pains of being a human. He, he took on all of the things that you and I have to experience every day, like suffering and pain that he never experienced in the glory with Father, with the Father. There's a difference between, though, between he and us. We have those pains because we're all under the curse, right? We have those pains. The reason we can't get along with people is not because people are dumb. It's because they're under the curse, just like you and I are, right? We like to blame others for that, but but the real reason is we're all under the curse. We're all in the same boat. Here's the difference. He wasn't under the curse, He wasn't under the effect of the curse. He was born of a woman, yes, but he was born by a virgin birth, right? He has to be born of a woman so that he can be a man. But he's perfect. I dare say this. No one has ever voluntarily humbled themselves for you like Jesus did right? No one has ever voluntarily humbled themselves and served you like Jesus has. In fact, when he came, it wasn't even a royal extravagant birth, was it? Do this for a second. Put yourself in the place of Jesus. Scary place, I know. If you're picking how you would come to earth would you pick stinky stable or cave out on the hillside of bethlehem with poor parents surrounded by livestock i know some of you farm types you would love that but literally you're going to be born in a place where lambs are birthed that's that's messy stuff man that's where you're going to be born no, he went through a humble birth to ordinary parents, no royal fanfare at all. In fact, his first visitors were shepherds. I want you to do this this year. Every time you see a nativity scene, and, and, and they're so fake, by the way, too, right? I mean, Joseph looks like he's like a chic in this thing. Joseph is probably beyond himself, wondering if Mary is going to survive the birth. He's probably stinky from from leading this long trip down to Bethlehem, leading this dumb donkey, and the dumb donkey won't go where it wants to go. Mary is probably saying, oh, it's killing me, Joseph. Can you stop hitting the bumps? Right? The next time you look at a nativity scene, Don't see it as so sterile and clean, but see it as a reminder of what we're called to do. We're called to lay down our rights, to lay down our privileges, to lay down our position for the sake of others. That's what we're called to do. It's a powerful call to humility. Who deserved to be born in the manger? Right? Not the Lord of glory. But one thing that nativity scenes do get right is what you see is all these people, even though the wise men weren't there, shepherds, Mary, Joseph, what's their position before Christ? They're bowing, are they not? They're bowing. And the ultimate act of humility is to bow yourself before Jesus and recognize him for who he is as Lord over all. And until you do that, until you do that, you're trying to be Lord of your own life. And let me tell you, it's a mess trying to be a Lord of your own life, isn't it? He humbled himself to remind us that we too will one day have to bow before him. May I plead with you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, to renounce all your attempts to be Lord over your own destiny and to humbly turn to him and bow before him and own him as your Lord and Savior and receive the gift of salvation. And like Christ, become his servant. You see, Nativity Scenes gets it right in this regard. They're all there focused on what? Christ. And one of the great lies of Christmas is this that it's about us, <laughs> right? Don't fall for that lie this year at Christmas time. Now, parents, don't use that as an excuse to not buy your kids' presents, okay? It's not about you, kid. But if you give them a present, make sure they understand the reason we give presents is because we're celebrating the fact that Christ was given to us, the greatest of all gifts. Father, we thank you for this amazing picture of humility that we have in Christ. We're thankful. That Christ, who was God, is God, continues to be God, would voluntarily not grasp onto that, that he would empty himself, that he would take on the form of a servant so that he could die in our place. What a glorious reality that is. For those here this morning that, that do not know that reality in their own hearts, may today be the day of salvation for them, we plead with you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.